Welcome to Weird Sequence, Season 1, Sequence 8, The Great God Pan by Arthur Machen. Be aware spoilers and trigger warnings for the following. Murder, implied murder, psychological trauma, implied sexual misconduct, implied sexual assault of a minor, suicide, graphic descriptions of suicide, misogyny, yikes, and a creeping hoarseness I sincerely hope is not COVID. Hello, and welcome to Weird Sequence, our monthly podcast where we investigate books that we find are strange or odd. Um, or just a little... There words. I'm doing it again. I can't do the intro. I've forgotten how to do intros. This is bad. Anyway, we're your hosts. I'm Phil Allegheri. And Damien Haster. And this month's book is The Great God Pan by Arthur Machen. So, this was a book written by the... Uh, Welsh author Arthur Machen. It was released in about 1890 to great outrage and scandal. Uh, so much scandal, in fact, it got a uh, glowing review from Oscar Wilde. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is a horror... I guess you just call it a horror story. Supernatural yeah. horror? Occult horror? Yeah. I, w- I would call it... You know, I'd call it Eldritch Horror. Eldritch Horror. And it uh, incorporates all of the good um, tropes of that. We have mad scientists, we have peculiar murders, we have... Um, strange suicides. Strange suicides. Possible. Things that are hinted at but not actually described that are right. horrid. Those were the scandalous parts. <laughs> Implied sex, the horror. Oh my goodness. Anyway, if you've just got through the ten minutes of trigger warnings before the show... <laughs> right. Welcome. Buckle up. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, The Great God Pan, or as I'm going to refer to it from now on, um, H.P. Lovecraft's style sheet. Right. Um, right. because... We're, we're doing, we're doing this book because it was mentioned in the Dunwich Horror, um, We're doing this book because you're trying to turn this into a, a, a Lovecraft podcast as hard as possible, and I won't let you do it. And yet it's we're not doing this book, and yet we're doing this book right now, which is That's... not Lovecraft, just... A book that Lovecraft nerded out over. Yes. And Stephen um, King. Did Stephen King know that after this one? Stephen King said that this was the... Uh, let me let me look it up so I don't get it wrong. <laughs> I, I, I know... Want, uh, I don't want I know Stephen King coming up. after me. Oh, you don't want Stephen King coming after you. Uh, I, I know looking this up just casually on um, Wikipedia, it, 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 uh, it was a surprisingly... Surprisingly, kind of uh, referenced and uh, reviewed kind of book, um, causing just an absolute, absolute like national outrage in Britain when it was released. To going and getting a, a sort of critical reevaluation, you know, sort of adored by Lovecraft and his his kind of circle of writers. Uh, it you know it, to the point where it was saying, I think it may have been a quote uh, that the Dunwich Horror was basically a uh, homage to this book. Yeah. Which, thinking about it, I can kind of see that a little bit. I I can. I can also see there's there's a Lovecraft story called um, From Beyond, I think, mm-hmm. where a guy, uh, 
he like stimulates his pineal gland and then he can see ultra he turns on this machine that stimulates your pineal gland and lets you see like the invisible world and um reminds me of that too but yeah stephen king um has a story that is kind of riffed off this off the great god pan and uh stephen king said um not Lovecraft. It's a rift on. It's a riff on Arthur, Arthur Mackin's *The Great God Pan*, which is one of the best horror stories ever written, maybe the best in the English language. <clears throat> I won't go that far. It is quite good. It's definitely well structured. It's definitely interesting in how they've approached this. It has that nice feature where it doesn't. Um, it doesn't give you all of the information about what goes on. Right. So you're well, kind of well, putting it together at the same time that a lot of the characters in the story are putting it together. And a lot of it, your imagination has to fill in. Oh yeah, and there's, like, there's hanging threads all over the place. There's no, there's no resolution to some of this. It isn't a nice, complete package. It's a thing that's still there and going on. Mm-hmm. And the the you know, it, I was thinking about this as I was reading it. Like, if this were a modern horror novel, um, I don't know that it would be as scary because there would have to be a lot more actual horror, like visceral well, horror. There'd have to be jump scares every 10 seconds. Right, and, and gore, and, and like... But this book is like... Um, it's, uh, oh, and, like, and don't like forget, you, the, uh, the first 20 minutes of the film they would make on the book would have to be the entire backstory of The Great God Pan. Right, or they would just skip it all and and have the characters do a bunch of exposition to catch the oh my god catch the viewers <laughs> up. They'd say things like, "As you know," things like that. <laughs> um, so, but but you read this book and it's uh, like you could read it through and not feel any kind of horror or or, or even be scared at all. And it's not it it's it's not directly horrific it's horrific in its implications um but I might there, be there is definitely a lot that is left to the imagination of the person reading the book yes. um and actually there's there's a couple of um pieces in here that uh, imply some very disturbing things but never in particular detail right um so with was talking about things and events that happened in the story should we summarize this we can try yeah I think we can try better than Ubik. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Speaking of short books that are hyper-dense with story and plot. Um, right. This wasn't quite as bad, but... This is a very Victorian story. It, the, it is The it language, is very, the language is very heavy. Uh, yes. Like, just this um, line here that I'm looking at. Like, I don't even have a British accent, so it's not going to be as good, but, like... Like I should like to think it is all true. Like it's it's very it's very like um, very British. Very the dialogue is very like I dare say, <laughs> I rather think like things like that. It's it's so. Come the morrow, we will head out to the farm. Exactly. I have a sore throat today. I don't know how much I can British this up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the great god Pan. Yeah, so basically the story starts... The story has uh, several sections. It's a novella. It starts out with these two guys, Clark and um, Raymond, Dr. Raymond. And Clark has... um, 
agreed to observe this experiment that Raymond is doing on this young woman um, that involves brain surgery. And it's, it's implied that it is somewhat consensual, even though the, the doctor's motivations are not exactly good. Right. There, <clears throat> so there are a lot of things that will be uncomfortable for modern audiences in this book. Um, oh, God, yeah. One so, of those being that that um, Dr. Raymond feels that he is um, within his right to experiment on this woman, Mary, because he saved her from the gutter. Well, um, this girl, Mary. Right. She's um, like 17. She's, she's supposed to be considered a, a, a sort of a maturity at this point. Right. They, he, Raymond thought, or Clark thought that she was about 17 years old. Hmm. Um and if you're playing horror trope bingo at home, um, this would be the mad scientist experimenting on, uh, I guess, virgins. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, you know, Clark, or not Clark, Raymond is, like, playing down the, like, the severity of this surgery. Like, he says, like, yes, a slight lesion in the gray matter. That's all a trifling rearrangement of certain cells, a microscopial alteration. And the, the, the surgery they're doing here is they are removing a small section of the brain to uh, uh, allow the person to see uh, sort of things and creatures you can't see normally. It, it's supposed to increase the perception of um, the world around you, especially with regards to sort of um, uh, sort of occult beings. Yeah, and this is this is a, a horror and and weird fiction trope now, partially because of this book. Like mm-hmm. in in Lovecraft's From Beyond, it's a machine that's altering your brain physiology to allow you to see the invisible things. Um, it's you know this this kind of idea, this idea that that there is. I mean, heck, this is this is a trope in reality. Like, there are people out there who believe that if you um, you awaken your pineal gland, that your third eye will open and you'll be all into chakras and <laughs> shit like that. Like, like this is this idea. Although this is the horrific end of it, that you could you know you could alter someone's brain chemistry and then they see you know the the eldritch beings that are around us, but they're invisible. Well, I mean. <clears throat> go go to the lighter side of that, and you have uh, what's the film with Roddy McDowell with the glasses? Is it uh, them? Who? What? It's um, is it a John Carpenter film? But, but it's it's the one where you get the line, you know, I, I came here to um, kick ass and chew gum, and I've run out of gum. The one in Antarctica? No, no, no. That's the thing. Oh, this is I don't, uh, I don't know them. them? It, it's a very it's it's an odd film, but he finds a pair of glasses, and when he puts his pair of sunglasses on, he's like, "Oh, hey, oh yeah, with the uh, with uh, with Rowdy Roddy Piper." Roddy Piper. Why did I say Roddy? I think you know. I'm thinking Malcolm McDowell. You're right. It's Ro- Roddy Piper. Um, yeah, yeah consume, it, consume. He sees the, he sees the half that people in day to day life are actually you know like aliens. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, it's like that. Like that. There's this. There's this hidden world around us that if you mm-hmm. could just make your brain do something that it's not used to doing, then you can see it. And the, the wonder or the horror mm-hmm. will be uh, clear to you. 
And in, in this case, uh, you know, Dr. Raymond's hypothesis is this small section of the brain op- operates something like a filter. Mm-hmm. And he's just going to remove that filter, and this girl, Mary, is going to suddenly see, you know, all of the crazy, uh, 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 unseeable, unknowable things that exist around in the world around us. Yeah. <clears throat> sounds sounds reasonable. It sounds reasonable, except they uh, they perform the surgery. She wakes up, sees something. Does she scream? Uh, I think so. You know, she, she has the, some sort of the uh, moment. The moment when she wakes up is is actually really well written. Uh, let me see if I can find it because because uh, like you you see the, the, on the well, there's this creepy part where he's like, "Give me a kiss," like the the kiss and blah blah oh, yeah. whatever. Oh, here we go. Suddenly, as they watched, they heard a long drawn sigh, and suddenly did the color that had vanished from the girl's cheeks uh, return to the girl's cheeks, and suddenly her eyes opened. Clark quailed before them. They shone with an awful light, looking far away, and great wonder fell upon her face. Her hands stretched out as if to touch what was invisible, but in an instant the wonder faded and gave place to the most awful terror. The muscles of her face were hideously convulsed. She shook from head to foot, the soul seeming seemed struggling and shuddering within the house of flesh. It was a horrible sight, and Clark rushed forward as she fell shrieking to the floor. And then three days later, they they pronounce her basically... Um, her mind's broken. She's just a hopeless idiot. Yeah, which is uh, not the right term anymore. But no, but um, again, eighteen ninety. Right. It was. It um, was. It was an actual psychological term for a long time until until people started using it to refer to people who weren't mentally ill. <laughs> there's there's a lot of insults in in um, English that are based on the incorrect usage of psychological terms. Right. So and absolutely none of them are PC. Oh yeah. So so this is something that I I was thinking about throughout the whole book, like with the the little story that maybe we should just continue summarizing it and then we'll come back because there's oh there's, yeah uh, this this book made me think about a lot of things. But, um, okay. So so basically, you can intuit from all that that the experiment worked. Um, mm-hmm. Mary's... In fact, here at the end of the, the first chapter, you know, uh, Raymond says, "You know, hey, th- this this couldn't be helped. She's seen the great god Pan. This this reaction is perfectly reasonable." Right, and and his reaction, considering that he asked the girl to give her a kiss, like is completely unreasonable. Like, what kind of a a monstrous dickwad? Like <laughs> he like. <laughs> The, sort of the, cold the, psychopath. The, the <laughs> woman, the woman's out. mind is broke, and he's like, whatever. Like the, that's like, oh, like he wasn't. I think I don't. I don't think it's implied that he's a particularly nice character. No, he's a he's a he's a. I don't even have a word for it. So so this so this Doctor Raymond guy is is a giant idiot. Like a he's a an evil guy. Well, the, the entire first chapter is. How to best describe it? It, it? it describes that he is, if not malicious, he sort of revels in the fact that he is seen as an outsider and he has his own special theories. Mm-hmm. He's a transcendentalist doctor. He described that's himself. It. But uh, so yeah, that's the first chapter. Yeah. So then the chop a the piece story... out of the girl's brain. 
<laughs> she Joe goes, goes crazy. Mad. Yeah. And then the story shifts to being the memoirs of Mr. or Dr. Clark. Moving on to chapter two. Um, this picks up... Was it? It, it implies it's almost like 30 years later. Yeah. Uh, not 30 years. I think it was... Uh, I thought it was like seven years or something like that. No, it was been, seven. Would have been almost twenty years or something. But I, I thought I read somewhere that it said three decades, but you might be right. Anyway, it picks up a number of years later, and it's the the interests, obsessions, and writings of Clark, who was the um, the observer in in Doctor Raymond's experiments, and he is. Um, he is co- uh, collating ideas. Well, he, A, he doesn't trust books that have been printed. So he goes and tries to hunt down handwritten first-person accounts of, of basically occult happenings. Yes. That he's composing into a book called Memoirs to Prove the Existence of the Devil. And in between his um, successful but, you know, nondescript business interests... Uh, this is this is the thing that he really he really gets into is is collecting and, and transcribing these stories. Yeah, which if you've read any Lovecraft, you know that that's a bad idea. I can't I can't imagine that in, in in a universe where you know the devil is real, writing a book called Memoirs to Prove the Existence of the Devil could could possibly go wrong. No, what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly the, go wrong? The devil could come and say, um, "Hi." The devil could sue you for libel. Well, he could, yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually a really nice guy. How dare you claim that I'm all murder and orgies? Right. I mean, the orgies are good, right? It's just people having pleasure. Whatever you do on a Friday night, dude. Um, Friday? <laughs> no, it's Saturday. I was going to say, I record <laughs> podcasts on Friday night. Uh, you know it's a good week when you don't remember what day it is. Right. So, he's collecting stories and he has an acquaintance come and speak to him about about this girl, Helen, and a series of strange occurrences in the small... Is it Welsh town? I think it's Welsh, yeah. The small Welsh town where she lives. And this is where the, the book sort of, at least to a, a sort of a modern view, goes from a, maybe a, a campy kind of, you know, ooh, the mad doctor's building Frankenstein kind of feel to genuinely sinister. And I believe from what I've read, this was actually a lot of the kind of um, the illusions and the descriptions was actually a lot of the scandal that surrounded the release of the story. Because Helen Vaughan, who is associated with all kinds of strange things that happen around her town, actually very much like the um, the son in uh, The Dunwich Horror. She's taken to wandering in the woods and there are a couple of incidents that freak out the people in town. One is, you know, a young boy stumbles across a Quote, playing in the grass with a strange naked man. The boy becomes hysterical and later feeble-minded. 1890. Um, right. But yeah. A weakness of intelligence. Um, a weakness then, of intelligence. Yeah, and then the There's, other story is about a, a young lady who is friends with Helen and goes out into the woods with her. And then uh, parents hear her screaming and they go in and she's half naked uh, uh, in her bed, like having a fit or something. Well, she, she's naked and rambling. She confesses to her mother what happened, though they never tell you in the story what happened. And then Rachel goes back to the woods and disappears. Yes. And, you know, Clark is interested in the story because 
Um, this ties to a bunch of Roman ruins in the area that have, as you come to find out, peculiar and strange um, markings and phrasings to them. Oh, the other thing, the, the little boy, um, Trevor, he, um, he gets better and then he goes with his dad to a person that, like to a, a well-to-do guy that his dad is doing work with and um, mm-hmm. the kid has like a, like a panic attack. And he's out in the hall screaming and pointing at this uh, old Roman bust that is on the wall. And yeah. he says, it's the strange man in the woods, it's the strange man in the woods, and it's like a bust, a Roman bust of Pan. Well, it's, uh, it's a bust of a, a satyr's head, so yeah. It would be that Pan-style character, uh, you know, with the sort of goat legs, mm-hmm. the kind of the little um, goatee-style, like pointy goatee beard. Um, although yeah. I, don't, I don't think in classical... <laughs> classical roman architecture they had the pointy beard but they were bearded yes they were um not the uh cute and friendly satyrs from the lion the witch in the wardrobe i never think of mr tumbus mr tums tumbus yeah i never think of mr tumbus when i think of, of satyrs i always think of um the fawn from um the labyrinth pan's labyrinth oh yeah that's a creepy um, movie. <laughs> that is a creepy filmy. Uh, creepy, creepy filmy. That is a creepy movie. No, I, 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 I've watched it twice, and I don't, I don't think I have it in me to ever watch it again. <laughs> Great film, love it, but I don't, I don't know that I can watch it again. So, Mister Clark and the the friend he's talking to um, go into some more particulars of Helen. Helen is an orphan, and you know, at some point after these these peculiar events, she disappears. So, so let's be real for a minute because we're all spoilerish in this in this story. Helen is sent to the country by some anonymous rich relative. Mm-hmm. Uh, that rich relative is Doctor Raymond, right? Yeah, I think I think it, it's literally she was she was sent by a Mister R. Oh, I didn't catch that part, but yeah, um, that's like was it. Was it... <laughs> Thinking, however, it would be better for the child to have a playmate her own age, he advertised in several local papers for a good home for the comfortable farmhouse for the girl of 12, and this advertisement was answered by Mr. R. Is so Mr. It, could be, it could be different to Dr. Raymond, but that just seemed an odd coincidence. But, but it's, it's Raymond, right? So, so, so all the spoilers out, like, Mary saw the great god Pan, and the great god Pan impregnated her, and that right. offspring is Helen. Helen, and and actually, in a in a very real, direct way to the Dumbwitch horror, um, Helen is not a a human child. She's sort of a half human, half monster child. Right. Which you you don't realize until towards the end of the book, where there's this very dramatic standoff, and she ends up um, dying, mm-hmm. and she actually undergoes something very similar to uh, the, the death of the Lovecraft monsters in uh, Dunwich Horror. She, she disintegrates, right? Um, well, she morphs. She, she, like, she changes shape a bunch of times before finally or something. basically turning into sludge. Yeah. 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 Girl is adopted, brought to this village, causes all this trouble. Um, let's see. Do you think? Do you think that this like this is another trope in in Victorian writing, and specifically in this this era of of horror and weird fiction, where it's like 
you know the the people who are who are strange uh who ultimately are the monsters are these people who really enjoy walking through the woods alone like is it do you think it's it's a do you think it's a pushback from the like the romanticism of the 1800s where like people were trying to reconnect with the ancient pre-christian past and and this is kind of like oh you may think you want to go walking through those deep dark woods to reconnect with your ancient non-christian past but think again because that's a place of darkness and i i think it comes from a slightly different place and i think it comes from that kind of air of colonialism Mm-hmm. This idea that you had a Western civilization that had these big cities that were civilized, and then everything the further you got from the cities was degenerate. Right. So you, you see this a lot in a lot of Lovecraft works where you, you get away from Arkham, you get into Dunwich, you get into Innsmouth, and it's it's a bit off. Yes. Things are you know, things are a bit strange. I, I've seen this in other in other kind of uh, stories where there is the correct way of doing things, which is the, the that kind of um, westernized civilization you know mm-hmm. you live in a big city you 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 are really in charge of things you don't necessarily do things you know uh you you sort of have to have your own estates and lands everything else the further you get away from that is increasingly worthless and degenerate right and i think that's kind of where that comes from so you know clark living in london well, you know, obviously, civilized has his own finances, businesses, lives in a nice house in London. Now, you know, the, the curious girl, well, that's from the Welsh border. That's where it all gets weird. That's where farmers live. And that's that's kind of where I think that comes from. It's, um, it's really a projection of sort of classism. Right. And to a certain extent, like a, a sort of uh, racism, depending on the context. So that, for me, at least, is where a lot of that comes from. Because I, I, and I'm sure there must be an example of it, but I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of an example where the the bad guy from a, st- a story from this period is somebody noble. You yeah, know what I mean, and and it's also like like you know these these crazy things happen outside of outside of good old England, but mm-hmm. but these stories are saying like no, there's there's horror and darkness here too, you know. Well, think of, for example, compare Dracula to this. You know, here you have, um, it sort of implied some sort of like working class girl, an orphan as well, so even more of an outcast, who is luring people into the woods and they are disappearing, going mad, bad things are happening. Mm -hmm. Compare that with Dracula, who, as soon as he starts to interact with people from London and is thinking of going to London, is bringing them in as retainers. Right. You know, Dracula's whole transit from sort of Transylvania to, to England is not... He doesn't specifically himself do that. His retainers do that. Right. It, you suddenly see it's a very different thing, right? Yeah. He's not abducting people or, you know, implying that they're doing dreadful things to them in the woods. He's draining their life force because he needs to sustain himself. Mm-hmm. Um... Very different feel, I, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, th- those books are also from different kind of time periods as well, so... Yeah. Let's keep going with the story. Um, so, so. The, so Trevor goes crazy from seeing a strange man in the woods and then seeing a bust of a cedar. Yeah. 
So we, we did that bit. Um, yeah. So if we, if we go further into the narrative, we get to... Um, so Phillips, this was the friend that Clark was talking to. Yes. Or no, so that, Villers. That, that's... Villers is his friend, isn't it? No, Phillips is the one that talks to Clark at this point. Villers is oh, the friend right. of Austin. That's right. Who comes Villers, in yeah. in chapter three. Which is the other odd thing with this story. The the character it looks like they're setting up as the main character, which is uh, Clark, is very much an ancillary character in the story. Yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> Even it's, it's, a, bit like, argue... um, it's a bit like Call of Cthulhu, where the, the character who's compiling all this information is not really the the main character for most of the book right and yeah that 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 is chapter two clark gets this story he writes it down he's like oh gosh this this sounds appalling and you know notes it down for his book so in the in the part with villers and and phillips so Mm -hmm. phillips is walking through london and Villers, I'm going to get these two mixed up. They're two. <laughs> Villers, they're, Villers and Austin, so they come two, in chapter two foppish British guys. Yeah, and it, it opens with Villers bumping into an old school friend by the name of Herbert, and Herbert was a um, Herbert was a man of some uh, wealth. He had a nice house. He had was an intelligent guy, and when Villers bumps into him, he is broke, essentially living on the streets. <laughs> I like they still refer to it as Dorsetshire, which is a somewhat archaic uh, reference to Dorset. So he he's confused. He's like, "Well, what happened? Why why are you living like this? You know, you has your family disowned you? You you know, have you has everything gone broke?" And he relates the story that he's been corrupted body and soul by his wife, his wife Helen. Hmm. And a few a few days later before they can meet up again, he's found dead in that house. Well, I think, uh, I don't remember if it says explicitly or if it's implied that Helen pretty much disposes of the house and the belongings as quickly as possible. Yeah, it's a strange thing. Because he's like, um, he's clearly disturbed by what by what happened and it's weird. And Well, it's interesting because at this, at this point when Villas bumps into him, he is aware, aware that this, this wife that he has, this, this beautiful wife of his, has essentially taken everything of any value that he had. So when he's saying, you know, corrupted, you know, um, sort of mind and body, sorry, body and soul, he he literally means it. She has destroyed him at a, an utter base level. Mm-hmm. This is where Villas comes into the story because his friend dies. He picks up with a friend of his called Austin and they try and figure out, well, what, what happened to this man? Who is age-wise... Um, and in terms of education, very much a peer of theirs. Yeah. Um, he's an acquaintance to both of them. And, the, you know, they, they should all be living a great life in London, even though they have these estates kind of outside of London. As you do. And that's this is where, at least for me, this is where the main story picks up. Yeah, for sure. Be- because the, the, the Everything main... up till now is kind of just a prelude. Right, because the, the main thrust of this story is this investigation by Austin and Villas to figure out who Helen is, what is going on with this, and how this connects to an increasingly uh, increasingly awful series of events that's happening in London. Mm-hmm. So, chapter three is this discussion of um, this murder. 
he describes a, 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 a I think it's in this one he describes a um, a visitation to the house where the murder happened and finding a room that was I, I guess it, uh, you know he, he's describing a supernatural event there's, yeah. there's some sensation in the room that is just purely evil mm-hmm. and you know they, they discuss things and they have these are their ideas and they uh, they, they go off to try and investigate them the, the other thing I like about this actually is you know between chapter three and chapter four is this is still very much a time period where people would handwrite letters right as a primary means of communication so they 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 go oh well we're going to take this course of action but then they don't get back to each other for a few months right i was just looking through and the they went to the medical examiner who did the autopsy because there was no no obvious signs of death right that's what the 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 autopsy report said that there is no obvious cause of death. Mm-hmm. But then when he goes and talks to the coroner, the coroner is like, uh, no, I, I know perfectly well what killed him. It was, uh, he died of fright of sheer awful terror. Yes. Yeah. And he says, he says, I never saw features so hideously contorted in the entire course of my practice. And I have seen the faces of a whole host of dead, mm-hmm. which is yeah. pretty terrible. Oh yeah. So this this goes into um chapter 4. So yes. at this point they're still trying to track down or find information about Helen who seems to have appeared married um Herbert and then disappeared as soon as he's died. Mm-hmm. And they end up concluding that she went to South America. Mm-hmm. And they contact they contact an artist down there. Is it an artist? I know yeah. they contact the doctor down there. Oh, it was an artist. She um, she had had a relationship with an artist down in, in South America um, who died under peculiar circumstances. And I know at one point later in the story, they get in contact with the doctor that, that sought the guy when he died. There's an implication of witchcraft and orgies and things. Um, another part of this great scandal this story caused. Yes. Even though I don't know that they specifically describe any of it. It's just implied. No, they don't. It's just implied. But, you know, back then, even the implication of that kind of thing was scandalous. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a good kind of um, indicator of the kind of level of self-censorship they had at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was a quote, actually, in... Uh, some of the, the the materials that I read about this from someone who had written to sort of uh, the Times newspaper in London and had, in essence, advocated for the complete destruction of horror and any story that had sexual content as as genres. Goodness. It's just like you know we could all grab get together and just utterly remove this filth, which is interesting um, off one eighty page novella. Right. That is. I mean, could you imagine that nowadays? Like network television have nothing on it. To, to show anybody <laughs> no i mean and like the the top selling genre of of fiction period is like by a long shot romance <laughs> like that romance books sell more books than any other genre uh, on yeah. the planet like um could you imagine like uh, cinemax oh um, like but victorian style yeah <laughs> two school kids like I saw her socks. Right. <laughs> saw a bit of her ankle. <gasps> she 
she she was wearing she was wearing a corset, but it it, it wasn't entirely done up. Scandals. Oh my goodness! I know. There there are similar <laughs> scandals like that happen in amongst uh, Mormon youths. If someone's someone's dress is a little bit too short, people talk about it. Oh my goodness! Um, heaven forbid they ever encounter the internet. I know, right? <laughs> Which, by way, by the way, is a complete aside. Uh, I don't know if I told you this. I got given a book of Mormon by a, a coworker for at a previous job, and it has completely gone missing, and I don't know why. I didn't take it. So now I'm, I'm just, I'm just. Did I? Because it was kind of soft, and it should be with my other. Because I have a little collection of religious themed books down here, mm. and uh, so my new international version of the Bible. I've got a Gideon's Bible to go in there. Um. It should be there, but it was kind of like it didn't have a rigid uh, um, uh, cover to it, so it was kind of floppy. I don't know if I removed it because I was worried it was getting bent or if it just spontaneously disappeared. But it was a bit freaky to be like, where did my religious book go? (laughs) Mm -hmm. One Book of Mormon disappearing is fine, but if they all suddenly disappear, then... That would be freaky. Mm -hmm. Mind you, you could say that of any any book. I mean, um, if all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld disappeared, what would you do? cry i would totally build a little altar to terry pratchett very very quickly yes i want those back i want my i want my copy of reaper man back anyway so as they're investigating they so one of the things that the guy that that the guy finds in this in this place on paul street where all this horrible stuff happens Mm -hmm. he found like a a piece of paper with a drawing on it um, and he goes and he, at this point, he's he's kind of consulting with Mr. Clark about all this stuff, because he heard that Mr. Clark was um, knowledgeable about unusual right. things. So they, 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 they come to Clark because he is he's known to be a, um, an authority on sort of occult happenings. And after, after, the, after the incident with Mary, he like swears off it all for a while. He's like... I'm done with that, but then after a couple of years, like he finds himself kind of going over and peeking yeah. in his bureau to see his. Notes and I think I think he like, likens it to the thrill of a, a drug at some point. Yeah, it's like it's like a thirteen-year-old with porn. Like they know they shouldn't look, but they can't stop. Like they have to go over and take a peek. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> yes. So. Um, <laughs> And, and kind of literally, I mean, he has a separate um, bureau that he keeps in his office that is just his papers for this book that he's compiling. Mm-hmm. And it is it is very much implied that it is a guilty pleasure that he kind of sneaks over there and, and indulges in all these, uh, trying to determine the validity of all these absurd stories. Yeah. So Clark starts seeing connections with other things that he knows about. And, and then he brings this this sketch to Mr. Clark, um, and it kind of, um, kind of blows his mind. Um, and you know, the interesting thing about how they describe, um, well, and and the thing, the thing with, with, um, Clark is he's concerned it might be Mary. Right. So when he sees the picture and it's not Mary, he's, he's sort of a little bit relieved, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, he's, He's still worried about what's happening here. It still feels wrong. And he doesn't really want to go into the details of what happened to Mary because he knows he was well over the line at that point. And this is another, this is another great um, 
incident where like uh the like in like in uh, the Dunwich horror when the when Professor Armitage um, translates the the journal of um, Wilbur Wheatley and it almost kills him like mm-hmm. like he he looks at this at this picture and uh, and then the guy looks at Clark and he's like good God Clark what's the matter you're as white as death. And uh, Clark, like, fell back in his chair with a groan and let the paper drop from his hands. I don't feel well. Like, like seeing this sketch of this woman has made him, like, physically ill. Like, that's how disturbing yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, but they always describe her as being pretty, like, being, a, like, olive-complected. Well, I, actually, they, with, they describe like, her um, as being extremely pretty. Right. Um, there's no implication that... She's anything other than a, just sort of a, a stunningly attractive woman, right? And that's something like it. It kind of when they describe um, Helen and and Mary like that. In both instances, it kind of bothers me a little bit that like the the markers of her strangeness are that she have she has olive complected skin and and almond shaped yeah, so eyes and like. It's just it's just that yeah. like colonial there's, there's a real other, implication that she has some like, sort of you know um, it doesn't say it explicitly I, I wonder if it's implying that it's um, almost like a Mediterranean kind of gypsy look right I think they said something yeah. about like almost Italian or something but, and you know that's that's the thing about like about like racism is that like the the category the categories that we have now for, you know, mm. races or whatever, the the culturally arbitrary categories of races are not always the same. Like, you know, even even a hundred hundred twenty years ago, Italians and Irish. You, you don't even need to go back one hundred twenty years. People. I mean, and maybe maybe as soon as like eighty years ago, they weren't really considered white people. And that that's part of the term uh, in America. Part right. of the reason they introduced you know white as a thing was so that they could kind of gather up all of these, uh, I guess, for want of a better descriptor, these approved Europeans, right? Um, to to kind of group them together um, as a cohesive group. But yeah, I mean, um, beating up Irish was a was a common thing if you go back to the sort of Victorian Victorian periods. Yeah, and like uh, in in the Call of Cthulhu, it it kind of one of the one of the uncomfortable things for me is that like the the sailors like the the sailors that are that are portrayed as being like these mm-hmm. weird unsavory people. They're like you know Lovecraft is like they were they were Portuguese, ooh, <laughs> like you know like like the just the fact that they're Portuguese yeah. or Italian is like makes it more horrifying yeah. or something. It's so it's silly. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, moving on. So they're still investigating Helen, and then there starts to be a series of not murders, but sort of peculiar suicides, suicides around London, and they're all s- perfectly ordinary, you know, sort of happy gentlemen, yeah. and well they go mad and kill themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, the only connecting fact they find is a uh, a Mrs. Beaumont. Mm-hmm. And so very much being in the frame of mind of these these peculiar deaths, they wonder if this, this is something to do with this friend of theirs. So they searched down this Miss Beaumont, who had come from South America, and had set up shop in London. 
the first the first person to go is Lord Argentine, mm-hmm. uh, who's like this young, vivacious, uh, socialite guy who's living the life. Like mm-hmm. he's having a great time. Everybody likes him. I don't remember. Does he hang himself? He does. Yeah. Oh, that's right. He does. Actually, this is the part of the story that's uniquely graphic mm-hmm. because it does describe. Um, it does actually describe an actual um, uh, a suicide by hanging, right? Because uh, in, the, in pretty, the pretty thing, the, detailed. <laughs> yeah, the, but it's important that he does because the the important part is that he hung himself in a way where all he would have to do to save himself was just put his feet down. Like, yeah, he's, he's literally hanging from the the short. Is it short bedposts? Yeah, the short bedposts. No, yeah, yeah, or the like, or was it him? Or there's another guy who like is just like even hangs himself by his, from his desk. Like, let's see. So after Argentine, you had Lord Swanley uh, hanging from a peg affixed to the wall. Mister Collier Stewart and Mister Harris had chosen to die as Lord Argentine. So again, these peculiar. You could have got this very easy sort of hangings. Yeah, a living man in the evening and a dead body with a black swollen face in the morning. Yeah. So they start to look into... The The only connection is they'd all left the residence of Miss Beaumont late at night. They start to dig into this. Now, is this is this before or after the guy goes to start investigating the Paul Street house? This is after the Paul Street house. Because he like he like stakes that place out and like watches it, and mm-hmm. so this is before he's or after he's doing that, but before he starts following Mrs. Beaumont around. Mm-hmm. And actually, he he uh, is it Villas actually observes somebody going in into the house and then coming out. It was Argentine. Was it Argentine? Yeah, he says. Um, oh, see. it's not Villas. Is it? Is it a retainer? This is another story that has just a lot of incidental characters that crop up. Yes. Yes, that's right. But he observes this look on his face, which he describes as just uh, demonic, just complete yeah. corruption of the, the person. So they've, they've staked out the Paul Street house. They, they're starting to investigate all these murders. What they come to the realization is, from the, from the picture they have, is that Mrs. Beaumont is Helen. It's Helen Vaughan. Yeah. So Villa's... Um, uh, resolves himself to go to Mrs. Beaumont and say, "Look, hands are, hand her length of rope and go. Like, look, you can deal with you. Do yourself in, or I'm going to go and alert the authorities to whatever it is you're doing because it's it's horrid and weird." Austin goes to, um, I guess, the little Welsh village to look at these ruins in the woods. Three weeks later, the two meet up again. Oh yeah, so this is the point when they get the um, the information from the the guy who died in South America um, from the doctor, and this is where they link the the murder to um, a Mrs. Vaughan, not a Mrs. Beaumont. So this is the point when they put the two people together. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, this last chapter is really dense. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other thing about this story is there's so much dialogue. There's a lot of dialogue. Like the ma- the majority of the story is dialogue. There, there is a fan fiction level of dialogue in this story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you read bad fan fiction, it's just uh, just endless. Just dialogue. Pages. It's just exp- dialogue. Exposition. Yeah. 
Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so basically they compare notes and I believe it is Villas who talks about watching basically Mrs. Beaumont kill herself. Mm-hmm. And he talks about her turning you know into a beast into a, a man into like this this amorphous black shape and finally dying is just this pile of like rotting sludge basically implying yeah. that she was something else some kind of like supernatural entity mm-hmm. the description disturbs his friend and uh they go on to put the rest of the pieces together from um letters they have and the story ends with it's a called fragments, so it's a, a, from the papers of Doctor Robert Matheson, who I think was the person who did the autopsy on um, Herbert at the start, written in a, a kind of coded Latin, I right. guess. And yeah, it's um, various bits and pieces. So it is. Uh, well, I'm just trying to see what it says here. Yeah. So some of it is the backstory of, Hel- of of Rachel and and um, Helen. And then some of it is, okay, yeah. So Robertson was the one that actually vividly describes the, the death of um, of Helen. And let's see if I can get the, the exact quote here. I watched and at last saw nothing but a substance's jelly. When the ladder was ascended again, when the ladder was ascended again, uh, notes are illegible. Uh, for instance, I saw a form shaped in dimness before me, which I will not further describe. But the symbol of this form may be seen in ancient scriptures and paintings which have survived beneath the lava, too foul to be spoken of. As a horrible and unspeakable shape, neither man nor beast was changed into human form. Here came finally dead. <clears throat> so I guess Matheson was one of the ones who went to confront Helen. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's where it ends. This murder rampage of the um, offspring yeah. of the great god Pan. So, why is this story horrific? Well, I mean, you can you can go through a shit list of even modern taboos that you shouldn't have in stories. There's implied sexual activity with a minor. There's implied abduction and murder of a minor. Right. There is um, trauma of a minor. Right. There is um, sort of semi-involuntary surgery on a minor right with an implication that maybe there's a relationship that's a bit unhealthy going on there to begin with there's at least one graphic description of a suicide there is um the formation of a lynch mob to go and murder somebody right there are many descriptions of people who are just driven to absolute wretchedness um, uh-huh. and sort of destruction. There's a lot... Of, I can understand why a Victorian society would have just absolutely revolted at this book. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little surprised Machen wrote this. And apparently it did damage his reputation. Because um, I think he was a fantasy author primarily up to that point. Oh yeah, for sure. And this this did do some damage to his, his credibility as a writer and as a, a, a sort of a moral human being. Mm-hmm. So, for me, all that like all that stuff is is 
yes, that's horrific and scandalous, even even today in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, for me, the horror of this book doesn't so much have to do with all that, although, you know, there is that. It's there. For me, it's... There's a couple things. The implication is, like, we don't know how exactly Helen compelled these these guys to kill themselves. But... Well, you, you're right. You don't know exactly. But there, there is some implication that it's, it is um, some sort of sordid, perhaps, sexual activity. See, I never I never got that implication. I just thought... Because people always say, like, they would, they would look into her eyes and, it, like, her eyes are disturbing and... The, I mean, the, the sexual implication is there because she. Well, I think I think the implication with that is that she, the these guys are leaving her, her private quarters at, at very early hours of the morning. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And it's not that they're all sitting around playing cards. The implication is that they've had some sort of one-on-one, um, personal um, kind of interaction that has mm-hmm. damaged the person who leaves. She showed them her Tupperware collection. Um, so, okay. So, but I mean, that's that's horrific too. Like, you know, you you sleep with a woman, and some some experience during that event destroys your sanity. Like, right? You know, that's that's pretty. Well, I, I don't I don't even know if it's it destroys the sanity. The, the implication is they are corrupted somehow. Mm-hmm. That they, they, because I mean, you got to think at this period of time, suicide was still illegal. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people ever got prosecuted for this, but you know, how do you get prosecuted for suicide if you're dead? I have heard of them doing posthumous prosecutions for this. I guess they could take take your assets and deny your assets to your next of kin or something, but. I think it was a thing to say that they did it. Like, oh yes, well, we've prosecuted this guy. Don't you all do that? It's like, well, the guy's still dead. What's it matter? So I know there was um, there was a very big taboo on that. You know, attempting suicide was a 100% easy way to go to an asylum. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, I think the implication is not so much... You know, we look at it and we go, oh, well, she's, she's killing and destroying these guys. I think the implication is more that she's driving them to just absurd levels of taboo. But so let's go back to the to the story about Trevor, the the little kid. Yeah. Um, so he goes into the woods. He falls asleep. He wakes up. He sees um, Helen rolling around in the grass with a half naked dude. Um, and then he is scared by that. And then a couple weeks later, he starts seeing the strange man from the woods in different places. He He's, he's anxious about leaving the house. Mm-hmm. And then he seems to get better until he sees the bust of a satyr in the, in the place. So if mm-hmm. we, if we take off our horror writer hats that says, Oh, well, clearly he's seeing a monster. Um, and we put on the hats of, you know, rational skeptics. Right. Um, like, Say say that there was someone who was claiming that those things were happening now. Like, I mean, we're not we're not doctors. Um, I work in behavioral health, so I know a little bit of things. But like, you know, like 
if if a kid if a kid is saying these things, you say, okay, so this kid is having either like an extremely vivid imagination that's that's you know it's unhealthy, or maybe he's having hallucinations or delusions. Uh, you know, there are lots of things that can cause that. You know, maybe it's a, a viral infection of the brain. Maybe it's a delusion disorder. There's, you know, a whole bunch of things in modern psychology and, and yeah. medicine that can that can cause delusional disorders. Usually not in young kids, though. But um, so, like, I forgot where I was going with that. But. <laughs> <laughs> this is the 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 lovely part about doing this at eleven o'clock at night. Oh, I know, right? Um, so I got to get up at six for work. Work, by the way. Nice. Yeah. So, oh, okay. This is where I was going. So, if if someone is claiming this in in reality, the so the the people who are investigating this, they are not really being objective about it. Like they're saying, okay, clearly. This kid saw something, therefore, and that's why he's having these delusions. Right. But that's like correlation causation. Like, did he did he see? Did what he saw cause the injury, or did the injury cause the delusion? Like, you know. And but so so there's that. Like the people that the people in this story that are investigating this are going in there thinking that there's a monster involved. Um, Which, you know, they're in a horror novel, it's fine. But thinking about it in terms of, like, how would you handle this? You know, they're going about it with the wrong set of background information. But now take the skepticism off and put the the horror writer back on. Um, This kid saw something. And whatever he saw was so strange so traumatic that it caused him actual cognitive harm. Like this kid doesn't have PTSD. He saw something and had like a traumatic brain injury or some like actual, like physiological injury to the brain. And see, this is, this is one of the things I find interesting with this story is everything that comes into contact with the great God Pan or, you know, through Helen, who is implied to be, uh, some child or manifestation of the great god Pan mm-hmm. gets corrupted. Right. It, it's 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 literally like somebody is just damaging whatever is there. Right. And they never really discuss it as oh well it's it's oh it's corrupting influence it's corrupting influence but it's very clearly you know she's not killing these guys. She's just doing something with them, and then they go off and kill themselves. Right. She's not killing Rachel. Rachel just went into the wood with her, woods with her and then died or disappeared. Right. You don't know what happened to her. Well, there's there's an implication of rape there as well. There's an but, implication of some kind of sexual assault there. Yeah. But there's, there's never a point in these, in any of these incidents that, you know, Oh well, look! It's clearly the influence of this. It's just so subtly woven into the story that mm-hmm. everything around Helen is just breaking down and being damaged. You know, you you have the room in in Paul Street that is just unpleasant to be in. You've got, you know, the 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 multiple sort of up and coming socialites that are um, 
damaged, just irreparably damaged. And in essence, especially with Herbert, sucked dry. Right. Um, <clears throat> and it's very interesting uh, for for two reasons. Because one, you have this thing walking around doing this, so it's not. It's more subtle than you would expect for a monster in a monster story. You know, she's not swinging from the rooftops, ripping people's hearts out. She, it just there is something that she does, and then lets nature take its course. The other thing that's, that's the other thing that's interesting with that is that um, there's also this implication that whatever is corrupting these people is all is there all the time. We just can't interact with it. Right. It's around people all the time. It's it's there constantly, but it it for some reason can't interact with our world. Yeah. Whatever whatever Mary saw, she saw it immediately when mm-hmm. she opened her eyes. So you know, so knowing there... that this was a, a big influence on Lovecraft, when you have these these Lovecraftian ideas where he talks about, well, you know, there are things that men shouldn't know, or there are, there are things that are too far from the the, the the sane minds of men to to comprehend fully. This is where this idea is kind of coming from. Mm-hmm. And this this story was a huge influence on Lovecraft. I think we said that before, but mm-hmm. like he he loved this story. He has an essay called "Supernatural Horror in Literature," and he nerds out over the story for <laughs> a long time. And and I think I I think rightfully so. Like this story is um, disturbing, and I mean it's disturbing in a, in a Victorian kind of way, but if you sit and think about the implications of it, like, you know, yeah, I mean... Well, it's... It, it It's a very strange story because it is both devastatingly graphic in places and conversely so subtle in how it does some of the... the actually, if you really think about some of the, the, the more horrifying implications of the story. And those mm-hmm. shouldn't work together. You know, right. uh, you know. Th- think of it like um, Jason Voorhees rips someone's head off, but then you also get an air that all of the people that he comes into contact with in his day to day life are also going a bit wrong. Right, well, that's that, that would be strange. Well. That wouldn't work as a film, and yet in this story, you yeah. have somebody who is going around subtly corrupting people. Um, that leads to these just shockingly graphic. Um, uh, sort of suicides and corruption and sort of destruction of self and yet it's really I mean you don't really see Helen as a protagonist much in the story at all it's always what she's done this, this no, kind of I saw, subtle like I saw um, black oil slick going through the story yeah in the the Wikipedia page about this um, there is a bit well, there's a whole bunch about, like, um, misogyny in the story, which I totally see that. Yes. Um, but there's somewhere... Where was it? Um, someone wrote a book from Helen's point of view. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> a, the novella Helen's Story, 2013, by Roseanne Rabinet, Rabowitz. Retells the story of the great god Pan from Helen Vaughn's point of view. Oh my gosh! And it won. It was nominated for a Shirley Jackson Award. Um, I'm, I kind of want to read that. Um, but to put that you on know, list. Helen is the antagonist of the story, but she never says anything in the entire story. 
and um well, i mean for, for for most of the story you don't even know it's helen right helen is just another side character in this whole narrative mm-hmm. and it's even when you put all of this together and you understand that you know mrs beaumont is helen the main antagonist of this entire story is still kind of a side character right I mean, if you think of Dracula, where the main thrust of the story is Van Helsing talking about talking about Dracula and the things Dracula does, but you never really see Dracula. That's kind of how this story operates. Mm -hmm. So you get a you get a very real feel for Villas and Austin's kind of action to try and uncover this and what's going on and the threads they're pulling of this story. But the story, the story itself, doesn't really have the antagonist in it. No, and, and it, it's it almost reminds me of um, if you know anything about ancient Greek theatre, mm-hmm. they wouldn't act. So a, a lot of ancient Greeks were orators; they weren't actors. So a lot right. of Greek theatre would revolve around the sort of participants coming up on stage. And narrating or talking about things that had happened off stage where all the action was happening. You know, and in essence, we'd come on stage and be like, oh, the king is dead, the king is dead, what should we do? And then someone else would come in and be like, well, he died in this way and it was so like this. And it's it's really like an oration of events that, that were happening without you being witness to them. Mm-hmm. And you can see that quality in some Lovecraft works. This absolutely does that. The, you know, this is the story of the investigation of what the antagonist is doing, not the story of the antagonist causing trouble. Right, and and like it, it's. Um, I, I think removing the protagonists from the actual, um, or I guess in in this story's case, you're not removing the protagonist; you're just removing the reader mm-hmm. from being in the moment when they're confronting things you're just reading it through letters and memoirs and stuff but i think that that is a really uh difficult thing to make work in a story but i think arthur machen did it in this one like you know you you almost i i don't think like i said if this were a modern horror book that tended to be more um, straightforward and less implied. I don't think it would be a better story. Like um, the, So much of it is left to your imagination that like it's um, it's more horrific that way, I think. Mm-hmm. Like like what like I don't I don't know if I've ever seen anybody in 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 real life that um, immediately gave me the creeps. I probably have. I just don't remember it. Oh, I definitely have. Like, you know, there's, there's an implication with Helen that like making eye contact with her is kind of like a soul shaking um, kind of event. But, you know, the other thing I was thinking is like Herbert, was married to her and he like describes like on their wedding night, he was sitting on their bed and she was talking about, uh, 
all these weird things that, like, I think he says, like, I, I scarcely can talk about them at all. I dare not talk about them. Like, <laughs> she's she's talking about these horrible eldritch things, but, you know, he doesn't die until later. So I wonder if, if like, Helen herself was going through a progression of, like, um, a transformation of her own. Well, I, th- I think there's, a, there's an implication with um, Herbert, not necessarily that she was trying to accumulate some power, like as a, a supernatural entity, that she was trying to gain resources to do things. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, he talks about her taking all his money. I think that was really the deal with Herbert, was she just needed to drain in the state to have the resources to do what she wanted to do. Now, what, what the specifics of that plan are, are somewhat inscrutable. There's some, Her, Her, Herbert has some great lines when he's explaining this, like, um, after he tells Villers that she took everything, there we go. Yeah. He says, um, he says, I could tell you certain things which would convince you, but you would never know a happy day again. You yeah. would pass the rest of your life as I pass mine, a haunted man, a man who has seen hell. And then, uh, and then a paragraph down, um, Villers says, what was your wife's name? You said Helen, I think. Helen what? And uh, Herbert says, the name she passed under when I met her was Helen Vaughn, but what her real name is, was I can't say. I don't think she had a name. No, no, not in that sense. Only human beings have names, Villers. I can't mm-hmm. say anymore. Goodbye. Yes, I will not fail to call. <clears throat> like, so Herbert kind of had it figured out like she's she's not a human yeah so anyway i take it that you like this story (laughs) i did like this story i uh it it is it is hard to read (laughs) it is the language is the language is very stuffy and dry and very foppishly british Um, It, it has that very heavy dense quality that a lot of older literature has, especially from mm-hmm. this time. Um, yeah. So it was... Between that and the subject matter, there were, there were a couple of sections of this I had to reread a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, did you... Did, do you think... Do you think it's scary? Or do you think it's... I don't, I don't know that it's scary like boo scary. I think it's unsettling mm. in that way... Um, a lot of sort of uh, Japanese horror films are. And uh, I'm thinking like yeah. the the Yuan or the Grudge, uh, the mm-hmm. uh, the Yuan or the Ring, where right. it's not necessarily that you. It's not necessarily that you have to go. Oh God, this is so scary! This is so scary! But you get that feeling the whole way through. It's like there's just something very wrong here. Yeah, and that's kind I of still the, get, fe- the feeling I there, got. There was a, something's very wrong with this. Through most yeah, of the story, there is a there is a kid in a classroom that I worked in a couple of years ago who um, liked to make the same noise that the that the girl from from the grudge makes that kind of like inhaled crackling uh, um, yeah that sound don't do that see I get I still get chills whenever I hear that from those movies that's great I'm gonna do that all the time from now on <laughs> oh my god I'm gonna punch you I will punch you through this microphone like <laughs> um so yeah, um, no, I, 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 but I, this. I, I agree. I agree though. This this story does have that 
that kind of J-horror kind of just like something is not right here kind of feel like, um, and it's not, it's not overly explicit except when it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I can, I can definitely see how this inspired a lot of authors like on the Wikipedia page. It says that it, where is it? It's inspired, uh, it influenced Dracula, it influenced, what else? Oh, there's a note here that it actually, um, you know, the, the fawn from um, Pan's Labyrinth was, was actually based on this as well. Mm, I see that. Yeah. The, the... The structure of the story was the influ- influenced Call of Cthulhu. Uh-huh. The monstrous half-human hybrid was inspired the Dunwich Horror. Yep. Um, uh, blah, blah, blah. Clark Ashton Smith was inspired by the great god Pan to write The Nameless Offspring. Um, so, I mean... Oh, Ghost Story. I need to read that. The Great God Pan influenced Peter Straub's novel, The Ghost, Ghost Story. That's on my thing, mm-hmm. list of things I want to read. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think that this story is is influential and, and justifiably so. Um, you know, it is hard to read as a modern reader because it's heavy and stuffy and... Uh, but totally deserves its its um, reputation for being a great horror story i think yeah all right and on that note um what is our next what is our next book I believe it's geek love isn't it geek love by Catherine dunn that's right yeah, that, i got that book i got that book from the library that is a fun one I've never heard of it. Kara, Kara, my my wife said that um, she used to have it, but I don't think we have it anymore. So, d- I, I know you, your wife used to have that because um, we gave her a copy. Oh. I'm so, going to have to look through my bookshelves then. And, I, and I'll have to tell you next time the, the story of how I, I happened to get this book and the state of the copy that I have. Um, it's quite a good story. But right. on that note, I think... Uh, I think we are done. Oh, good, because I'm exhausted. And I'm about to fall out of my chair. <laughs> All right. That's Whoop. how we like to end these podcasts. Just run it, run it until we can't run anymore. If you enjoyed our podcast, consider liking, subscribing, and maybe even recommending to a friend. We'll see you soon. <laughs>